That song we just sang, taken from Psalm 76, so we did sing a psalm today. The last verse, 12, says, He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. And Isaiah 10, indeed, describes him cutting off the spirit of princes and being terrible to the kings of the earth. Let's turn to Isaiah 10 and continue by starting at the 15th verse. Isaiah 10 and verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. I read verses 15 through 19, which describe in more detail the judgment of King Sennacherib. Here is the Lord's response to his boasting from verses 8 through 14, with only 12 being an exception, where he inserted that he would judge this blasphemer. Verse 15, Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body. And they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth, and the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, that a child may write them. Amen. amen and amen. We have a question in verse 15. Should the axe boast against the one that hews a tree with it? You know, the axe is, an, is metal and wood, and it's being wielded by someone with strength and wisdom to direct the axe to cut down the tree. And, and all Sennacherib was, was the wood and the metal, and it was God that was wielding him. Should the axe boast? Shall the axe boast? I have listened to your words in verses 8 through 14. The Lord is saying to Sennacherib, Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? How much is accomplished by an axe in the tool shed? Nothing. It takes the one wielding it. And so that's why we had Isaiah 37 and verses 26 and 27 that said, I did it. Because without the one wielding him, nothing would have happened. Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? You know, when we think of all our power saws, we don't immediately grab these words, though we should. But the saws back then were shaken. Whether it was a two-man saw or a one-man saw, you had to shake it in order to work those teeth down through the wood that you were cutting. As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up. When a man lifts up a rod, how often does that rod shake itself in his hand? 
How many times has a staff been lifted up and it behave as if it were not wood? You're nothing but wood. You're a pawn. You're a puppet. God says of Sennacherib, there is no place for boasting in any achievement for it is God that blesses or withholds. While the prophecy is about Sennacherib in real history, we want to learn that lesson. To never claim that it is your ability that gains success. It is God's blessing. The Lord built the house regardless of men that worked on it. The Lord keeps the city regardless of the watchmen. Political promotion doesn't come from the north, south, east, or west. It comes from the Lord, according to Psalm 75. God uses great men, even like a king, even like Sennacherib, as a pawn or a puppet. The king of Assyria here, the truth that I teach you, the truth that we believe about the sovereign government of God of the world is just like puppets, just like pawns on a chessboard. Except here, it doesn't use the word puppet. It doesn't use the word pawn. It uses the word axe or saw or rod or staff. All inanimate. They don't have a a thought in themselves which is an extreme example because Sennacherib did have thoughts, but they were just his thoughts. He did not see the big picture of how he was being used by God to punish nations and to raise him up so that God could cast him down. Everything he did, God had purposed he would do it, moved him to it, and enabled him for it, and caused him to be successful. He was a thinking axe, but his thoughts got him punished because he thought too highly of himself. It's a shame that some are afraid to give God too much sovereignty, so they limit him. They've encountered fatalists in their lives, so they find safety in another ditch. I don't want that other ditch. I want to be right in the crown of the road. The arrogance and cruelty by the Assyrians was terribly evil, but God used it in a very holy way for holy ends. He is holy in what he did. The atrocities and war crimes that we could describe as being in verse 6 about Sennacherib taking God's charge to take the spoil, take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets is God's work. What is your idea of free will? Man chooses freely any character or conduct that he wants from his lusts. I've already quoted James 1.13. God is not tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts. God just directs them, and he's a master at it. We can't can't move a person according to their heart as well as he can, although fathers do learn how to do it. Pastors learn how to do it. A man learns how to move a woman. Bosses learn how to motivate employees and then direct their efforts. But God's the master of it. He never violates the will of sin in them that bursts forth and he directs it to accomplish his goals and purposes. Man freely chooses to sin just as he wishes. God doesn't have to infuse evil into him because it's already there. Can God harden a man? Can God use his wicked 
choices of his spirit and then punish him? Yes, we've already covered that. Romans 9, 17 through 21 makes it clear. God is God. He can treat men as he chooses, even punishing them after using them. God does not care about your freedom like men that argue against his sovereign will. He can protect a man from Satan, like he did Job, put a hedge about him. Satan knew that hedge was there. And he can turn a man over to Satan, like he did with Job. Even though Job hadn't done anything that we're told in the Bible for God to turn him over to Satan. God's in complete charge of Job's life. Prosperity, chastening, trying, testing by the devil himself. He rules Satan, so the two are used interchangeably. Holding your place at Isaiah 10, I mentioned this before, but turn with me to Job 2. Job 2 has the terrible statement of Mrs. Job in it, when she said, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But it also has something else. It has an exchange between God and Satan. What goes inside a puppet to make it work? A hand. Just keep that in mind. And the Lord, this is Job 3, Job chapter 2 and verse 3. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without cause. Now who's moving whom? Who's punishing Job? God is. I hope you can read the Bible. This is what I've believed since I was 19 and had to defend it when I was 27. He still holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. So the troubles that arose in Job's life were from the Lord because the Lord is in such control of Satan that it can be said to be of the Lord. Satan, and God said it was of the Lord. Satan responds in verse 4. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Satan speaking, But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. So whose hand reached forward to touch Job's body, according to Satan's view of it, God's, because he is so much under the control of God. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand. So whose hand is he in? But save his life. I've been ridiculed when I was a young man for believing that Sinners are but puppets in the hands of God. I give you the word of God, as I gave then. You say, well, how doth he yet find fault? Well, you need to go back to Romans 9 and read it again. He doesn't answer ridiculous questions like that based on your foolish view of the universe. Look, at this is Satan's hand, it's God's hand, because Satan can't do a single thing unless God lets him. And Satan knows it so well, he just looks at it as, you did it to Job. May the Lord bless that little excursion. Let's come back to Isaiah 10, verse 15. We enjoy it. 
Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Should an axe take credit for cutting down a tree? It's the man wielding the axe. You can lay the axe next to the tree. You can tie it to the tree, but it's not going to cut the tree down until someone uses it. Uses it. God used Sennacherib. 16. Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. God is going to burn up Sennacherib and his army. He is going to cut down Sennacherib and his army. You can look at it different ways because it's going to be described in different terms. There's going to be a bough of a tree lopped off in verses 33 and 34, and there's going to be a fire under the glory. Now, he didn't burn up the army, but it was as if he burned up the army. These are the similitudes of a prophet. Therefore shall the Lord, because this axe boasted, because this saw magnified itself, because the rod thought it could shake itself on its own, and because the staff thought that it could lift itself up against the one using it, therefore, and we love that therefore in verse 16, shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, a general use of Adonai, and then a more specific emphasized use, Lord of hosts, small O-R-D, send among his fat ones leanness. Jehovah would blast this blasphemers, fat, great, and successful generals with leanness. Sennacherib had taken 46 fenced cities of Judah, many lesser cities, and much spoil. The army was flush with spoil and wealth, which would be given according to rank. Yet the whole army was fat with riches from their numerous successful, successive victories. The angel of the Lord would strike them and reduce them numerically by 185,000. But I want to show you something about God's selective service. God's draft. God's selection of who got in the 185,000. Who made the cut? Turn to 2 Chronicles 32, holding your place at Isaiah 10. 2 Chronicles 32. To my shame, I haven't fully appreciated this verse before. 2 Chronicles 32. Now there's a lengthy description of Sennacherib's fall in 2 Kings 18 and 19, and that is basically the same one we get in Isaiah 36 and 37. But 2 Chronicles 32 is summarized, and yet, as God's word may do sometimes, like Mark being such a short gospel compared to the others, it has little things in it that we never want to lose. Look at this one. The 185,000 that the angel of the Lord killed in the Assyrian army, what kind of men were they? Yes, it's verse 21. 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 21. And the Lord sent an angel, which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he was come into the house of his God, they that came forth of his own bowels slew him there with the sword. Two of his sons came and killed him so that another son, Esarhaddon, became the king of the Assyrian empire. Esarhaddon is mentioned in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 2. 
what I want you to notice here is that God was selective when he sent the angel of the Lord into the camp of the Assyrians and he looked for the mighty men of valor and he looked for the fatness to make lean and he looked for the glory of the forest. He just didn't cut down indiscriminately average men. There was an army left. There was an army left. This wasn't all of them. This was the best of them. So it destroyed the spirit or soul and body of the army. It destroyed the body by reducing it numerically by 185,000. We're going to read these words momentarily. It destroyed the soul of the army by taking away all the mighty men of valor that were diligent and intelligent and had risen in the ranks to be captains and leaders and fighters. In an army like this, the most zealous ones are put up front and the weak ones that are barely there are able to follow the fury and the ability of the ones fighting in front of them. They like having the mighty men of valor around them, but God took them out of that army. Right here. It is not described this way in Kings or in Isaiah that you read, he cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains in the camp. And Sennacherib had shame of face to have had such a terrible loss of all his mighty men of valor. The army that he had left ran around in chaos and confusion like when a standard bearer fainteth. A standard bearer keeps the army together by keeping the king's ensign and any signals attached to it up for the army to see the king hasn't fled the battle scene. Because when that standard dif disappears, you know what's happened. Oh yes, Darius has run because he's afraid of Alexander the Great. And as soon as an army sees that their king has deserted the battlefield, he's getting the most reports of how the battle is going. When he leaves, they run around in panic and fear, chaos and confusion. And the Bible's going to describe that by having a standard bearer faint. There's going to be an army left because the Lord's going to call it. The rest of them will be written by a child right. to muster an army. The word muster means to organize it, count it, count its, two, its weapons, organize its logistics, and understand it before it goes into battle. It's, it's a verb. To muster an army is to call it together and count it. And it's a complicated issue when you have several hundred thousand men in the field. You ought to read, I don't want to bore you with that, but Xerxes put the largest armies in the field ever at one time, and to try to muster them, count them, keep them in their divisions was an enormous task. But this task is going to be made simple because the numerical strength of the Assyrian army was reduced by 185,000 so that it says in Isaiah chapter 10, in verse 19, a child may write them. A child would be able to muster that army and be able to count it up and write it down as to the few number of the trees of the forest left. But what trees of the forest? See, the forest is the army. Throughout this chapter and in other places in Isaiah, the forest is the army. But what part of the forest did he cut down? The glory of it. He cut down the glory. And so that the rest of the trees shall be few. But he cut down the glory in the verse that we have in verse 16. He'll send among the fat ones leanness, the best, the cream. Do you know we say the cream rises to the top? The cream of something is the best part of it. 
The cream of milk is the richest part of it. The cream of an army he would make lean by taking away those mighty men. And under his glory, the glory of the army, he would kindle a fire and burn them up. Verse 17, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and Israel's holy one, their holy God, for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And this verse describes them as lower class because briars and thorns are not good fuel. They make a lot of noise, produce little heat. And so we've encountered this description before, back here in chapter 9, as describing the lower class of Israel. Here it's the lower class in, a, in terminology of Assyria. Verse 18, there's verses that we could go to that are so powerful about flame. I want, to, I want one of them. Look at Ezekiel, Isaiah 33. Yes, it's Ezekiel 31 as well, but Isaiah 33. It's Isaiah 30. It's, it's also in 31 and 33, but I, I want chapter 30. Isaiah 30. We are going to encounter Assyria a number of times. Look at this description of God's burning fury. You know what it says in Nahum chapter 1 because I've shared it with you so many times about the rocks being thrown down by him and his furious fire of vengeance. That's against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, in Nahum chapter 1. Here we go. Verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord. We know his name, don't we? Cometh from afar, burning with his anger, and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue as a devouring fire and his breath as an overflowing stream shall reach to the midst of the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of vanity. And there shall be a bridle in the jaws of the people, causing them to err. Ye shall have a song as in the night when a holy solemnity is kept and gladness of heart as when one goeth with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. Israel would be celebrating. The rest of the world would be suffering under the flaming vengeance of God. And the Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard and shall show the lighting down of his arm with the indignation of his anger and with the flame of a devouring fire with scattering and tempest and hailstones. Hallelujah! What terminology! This is the God of the Bible and the Bible of our God. For through the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down, which smote with a rod. Yep, he spanked Judah, but God beat him down. And in every place where the grounded staff shall pass, which the Lord shall lay upon him, it shall be with tabrets and harps, and in battles of shaking will he fight with it. For Tophet is ordained of old, yea, for the king it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile thereof is fire and much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, doth kindle it. What a description. It's in the word of God. You say, well, it's too long. You shouldn't have read it. Are you kidding? It's beautiful. Because it matches verse 17 of Isaiah 10. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire. There it was, the name of God, and the name of Israel's God, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars. And how long would it take to do that? In one day. 
and shall consume the glory of his forest, the best part of the army, and of his fruitful field. The fruitful field, not just the bare fields, ordinary fields, less than the best fields, the fruitful field, both soul and body. When God came after the leaders and the captains and the valorous men of the Assyrian army, it destroyed that army, soul and body. The body of an army is its numbers. The soul of a body is its fighting spirit. And the fighting spirit of an army makes all the difference in the world. Alexander with 40,000 Macedonians that he had handpicked was unbelievable. They were not like the mercenaries and the men forced to fight for Darius the Persian. They were an ambitious group because God gave them dominion. The Bible says there was choler in him. And that's where we get choleric from. Uh, there was choler in Alexander the Great. There was driving ambition to defeat enemies because it's the fighting spirit of an army. For those of you that know anything about athletics, it's not the man in the fight. It's the fight in the man. There are men that God put a spirit in them. They want the ball for the last second shot. Most people don't want the ball for the last second shot. They actually want to be sat on the bench so that someone else can lose the game by missing the shot. There are men that want that shot every single game. When you take out 185,000 of the cream of the Assyrian army, its captains, its leaders, and its valorous men, what do you have left? A few that a child can write down with no spirit. So there you have soul and body. It's just, wow. You know, the Lord can give us soul. And the Lord can give us numbers. And you know what we want the most of, right? We want soul. I'm, I'm corrupting this a little bit. For the We want quality in our church. We want to grow in grace. We want to grow in spirit. And they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. The army that is left would be confused. Listen, the, the corpses weren't confused. They were dead. The rest of the army was confused like when a standard bearer fainteth. I mean, that standard bearer is to hold up that ensign of the king until the battle is over. But if he faints and that falls where signals are made to the whole army and to represent the king as still being on the battlefield, when it falls, there's chaos. And so there was chaos. And with confusion of face, Sennacherib had to go back to Nineveh. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few. See, there was a forest. That's his army. But the rest of the trees were only a few. And a child could muster that remaining army as it went back with Sennacherib to Nineveh. We come to verse 20. And the next section of Isaiah 10. Verse 20. I'm going to read through verse 23. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined, 
in the midst of all the land. These four verses are telling us that God had a plan that he was going to destroy most of Judah and save the remnant, and the remnant he would revive to turn back to him. And Hezekiah led that. Very quickly, verse 20. That day is the day when God would smite the Assyrian army, that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped shall no more again stay upon him that smote them. Who had they stayed upon that smote them? The Assyrians. Because Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, had appealed to Tiglath-Pileser to come to his rescue against the confederation of reason king of Syria and Pekah king of Israel. Remember that. It's 2 Kings 16.9. You can go there and read about it. So they had trusted to the Assyrians. They had rested on the Assyrians, and then the Assyrians turned and smote them. And so the remnant is in the city walls of Jerusalem because Judah's been destroyed. 46 fenced cities taken. If you go read the record in God's word, it says that he took all the fenced cities. In Sennacherib's inscriptions, he said, I took 46 fenced cities and many smaller cities of Judah. And I had Hezekiah like in a birdcage in the city walls of Jerusalem. And so verse 20, it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped, those that were in Jerusalem, the rest were killed or taken captive. 200,150 taken captive according to the inscriptions of the Assyrian Empire for this particular expedition. They shall no more again stay upon him that smote them. They are through trusting Assyria, but they shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. They will be sincere. They will no longer be hypocrites. They will trust God in truth because they saw God take care of the mightiest army on earth, do it with the selective process, take out the soul and take out the body and destroy that army, take away its glory, take away its fatness, make it lean and pitiful so that a child could muster the troops. They saw that. And all they did was have a king that prayed over a letter. And the Lord said, the virgin daughter of Zion hath laughed thee to scorn. He shall not shoot an arrow at this city. He will not raise embankments against it. And he will not put foot inside my city. Don't be afraid of King Sennacherib. He says that in verse 24, but we're not quite there to verse 24 yet. The remnant that escaped are those not killed or taken by Sennacherib. And they're inside the city of Jerusalem. And any that were able to escape outside in Judah because that army ravaged the place. There was no seed left. We're going to be told that God would take care of feeding them. It's, going to, it's coming up shortly. God would take care of feeding them. Everything's going to grow by itself this year. Eat that. It's going to grow by itself the next year. And then you'll be able to plant in the third year. He's not coming back. It's just very, it's just very comforting. Now, this is going to surprise you because of the way I've preached it in the past. This will surprise you, and I'm sorry that it's a surprise. The time between God destroying Sennacherib's army 
and Sennacherib being killed by his two sons is 30 years. It's 711 B.C., Ptolemy's reckoning, to 681, Ptolemy's reckoning. It's 30 years before Sennacherib was killed. He had other expeditions of his army, but never toward Jerusalem again. And the only what we can make of that is Sennacherib got to think about it for 30 years. What in the world happened outside the city walls of Jerusalem? You say, how do we know all that from the chronologies of the Bible? And that's what I tried to give you when we started out this series. But Martin Anstey and Floyd Nolan Jones and others have shown by the chronology that Hezekiah's 14th year was well before the death of Sennacherib. There's a 30-year gap in there in which he went on many other expeditions, but never against Judah and Jerusalem again. God destroyed the mocking Assyrians by his angel, which caused a revival in faith. The situation appeared totally hopeless, with the mighty Assyrians mocking them, but the, the deliverance did not require a single drop of blood or a single drop of sweat, because the angel of the Lord did it all. America was upset with 3,000 on 9-11. What about Assyria with 185,000 of the chiefest of their soldiers? Leaders, captains, and valorous men. The escaped remnant of Jews learned the rule that Jehovah hates affinity, which we've already learned in Isaiah chapter 8. Reader, where's your faith? Is it trusting anyone or anything but God himself? Even when we go for medical help, we better be trusting God to bless those efforts. Right. No matter how cutting edge the gene therapy drug may be, we need God to bless that effort. Right. Everything we do, we need to God to bless it. Or else we end up trusting in the arm of the flesh. The Bible tells us about Asa, that he turned from trusting the Lord and he had a great kingship of Judah. He trusted to the physicians. And so he was left ill for the remainder of his life. We don't want to be like that. Don't trust physicians. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust our government. Don't trust our almanac that we still have a competent military. Don't trust drones. Don't trust AI, artificial intelligence. Don't trust our new fighter jet. Don't trust any. Trust the Lord. And we need to turn to him and tell him that our whole trust is in him. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, and our nation does some of that, but safety is of the Lord. And we need to remember that all the time. Asa, turning to, he sought to the physicians and not to the Lord. It's terrible. So verse 20 is telling us that God had a second purpose here, and that was to save his remnant and give them a revival that they would trust him and no one else after killing off most of them, which you'll get to in verses 22 and 23. Verse 21, the remnant shall return. This isn't a geographical return. This is a spiritual return. Because it says so in verse 20. They'll no more trust in Assyria, they'll trust in God. Same thing in 21. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. Now God wasn't in a place where they had to return to him. They had to return to God in the proper worship and trust of him to take care of them against all their enemies and to put their trust nowhere else. Verse 22, For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. That little yet there that's in italics, that little yet, that inspired disjunctive 
is telling you that the remnant is set in opposition to the people of Israel being as the sand of the sea. The sand of the sea is innumerable. You can't even count them. No matter how big God made Israel, they were not all Israel which were of Israel, and his remnant was small. Yet, and we've learned that all the way from chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 9, we learned that if the Lord of Sabaoth had not left us a very small remnant, we'd have been made like unto Sodom and Gomorrah, which was an absolute annihilation of both cities. So a very small remnant, a small remnant. What's it called in Isaiah 6? I forgot. It's a, it's a numerical term. In Isaiah 6, in verse 13, it was 40%? Oh, a tenth. A tenth. Okay, 10%. So it's small compared to the whole. And here, that is indicated to us by the word yet put in by our King James translators. Yet a remnant of them shall return. In opposition to the many, there would be the few. Many are called, few are chosen. This is how God operates in the world. That's Matthew chapter 22 and verse 14. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. God is righteous in election. God is righteous in rejection, which is called reprobation. It'll overflow with righteousness. It's perfectly righteous. The nation deserved to be wiped out. But God saved a remnant. Hezekiah's father. What a terrible king, King Ahaz. Hezekiah's son, what a terrible king, King Manasseh. Hezekiah was in between them. And he brought about a revival with God's blessing as, they, as Israel, as Judah, turned their faith to the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth and sincerity, rather than trusting Assyria. But notice a consumption decreed. What is a consumption? It is the work of consuming. And God would consume most of the nation and leave a remnant and revive that remnant. And that remnant would be able to go out of the city of Jerusalem. Their roots would go downward. They'd grow upward. And the, and the nation would expand again. Go read about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was very, very rich. After God killed the Assyrian army, its cream of the Assyrian army, all the kings of that part of the world sent money to Hezekiah and to Jerusalem for that happening outside their city walls you got to read about it. He was very, very rich. You know, he had sent some gold to Sennacherib. He had bought some time. I've taught you all this before. Slides, sermons. He sent some gold. He actually cut some gold off the doors of the temple to send it to Sennacherib to buy a little bit of time. Listen, I want to be friends. Here's a gift. didn't last long because Sennacherib didn't like... When Sennacherib saw money coming, there must be more. I'm going to go take it all. Remember, it's all like in a nest for me, and the hens left the eggs. I'm going to go pick up the eggs. But, but Hezekiah, in that time, changed the water course and where water was available outside the city walls, and he made himself darts and shields in abundance. It's all in the Word of God. He used the means that he had. He never intended to be Sennacherib's friend. He just needed a little bit of time to get all the people outside to change a water course. It's described for you. But Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. You know what the Bible says about his trust in the Lord? No king before him or after him that trusted in the Lord as much as Hezekiah did. 
So when we look at the four great kings of, of Judah, Hezekiah is one of them for his great trust in the Lord. Verse 22, a consumption had been decreed by God to consume most of Israel, most of Judah. You know, Israel had already been taken. It would continue to be decimated until it was not a people, as we learned in chapter 7. Even, even atrocities like the Assyrian War were Jehovah's eternal purpose, as I've already shown you. It would overflow in righteousness, and that election is perfectly righteous. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. Do you know what comes up immediately next? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. It'll overflow in righteousness. When God does something, it's overflowing in righteousness. It's perfect on the election side of saving a remnant. It's perfect on the consumption side that's been decreed to destroy a rebellious people. Verse 23, For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined. Here's his determinate counsel of rejecting the larger portion of Israel and Judah in the midst of all the land, consumed by the Assyrians. Shalmaneser and Sargon taking out the ten tribes, Sennacherib taking out the fenced cities of Judah, leaving the remnant inside the city walls that Hezekiah was able to lead in a revival, so they put their trust in the Lord Jehovah rather than in Assyria. Which brings us to verse 24. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, O my people, is, oh, you want to read those words after you read about a consumption decreed and determined. O my people. The remnant are called, O my people. We are his people. We should thank him every day of our lives. The Bible says we are bound to give thanks all way to God. For you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning, that sounds like decreed and determined, chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. We want to thank Him. We don't deserve being the remnant. He made a choice for us. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian, he shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while and the, ignit- and the indignation shall cease and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Okay, we're finally there, brethren, but not quite yet. It's in verse 27, the last four words, because of the anointing. How many times have you skated over those words? How many times have I skated over those words? Lord, forgive us for missing the four most important words in Isaiah 10, because of the anointing. But we're not there yet. We're at verse 24. O my people that dwellest in Zion, another name for Jerusalem, don't be afraid of the Assyrian. He's going to smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. Do you want to see the Holy Spirit with some parallelism? 
What does it say at the end of 24? After the manner of Egypt. What does it say at the end of 26? After the manner of Egypt. Watch this. Did Pharaoh lift up a rod against Israel when they were in the land of Egypt building his pyramids and cities? That's after the manner of Egypt. I'm going to let Assyria do to you what Pharaoh did to you. Do you know what after the manner of Egypt is with a rod in verse 26? I'm going to lift up my rod. And like I, like I held my rod over the Red Sea, and you all went through on dry ground, and I drowned the entire Egyptian army, I'm going to do that to the Assyrians. I will kill 185,000 of them in one night, and you will all be delivered after the manner of Egypt. That, listen, brethren, that is just flat out beautiful. You want to talk about creative writing? Do you, do you see it? Do you see after the manner of Egypt in 24 and after the manner of Egypt in verse 26? And they're two different things. In verse 24, it's that Egypt had oppressed the Israelites, the Jews, and Assyria would be allowed to oppress them. In verse 26, it's God's rod coming out again, like he had done with the Red Sea. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. I have to celebrate alone or with a wife when she's home during the week. And this is me getting to celebrate with you now. But some of you look like you don't get it. I mean, it's just flat out beautiful. After the manner of Egypt. Oh, my people, don't be afraid of them. Yeah, he's going to smite you. Yeah, he's going to want you to build a pyramid with fewer bricks and no straw like he gave you before. Don't worry about it. I've got it covered. That's how the verse starts out, verse 24. For yet a very little while. I love that about God's chastening. For yet a very little while. Now we read about a very small remnant, but you know God's chastening is for a very little while. Let me read to you from Psalm 30 and verse 5. We could go all over the place with this one. The Lord's chastening is precious. For His anger endureth but a moment. In His favor is life. Weeping may endure for a Night, but joy cometh in the morning for yet a very little while. The Lord's comforting us. He keeps his judgment short. He just doesn't beat and beat and beat and beat. Even though we both know we deserve it to be beat and beat and beat and beat. He's so merciful and gracious. So there in the middle between 24 and 26 for yet a very little while and the indignation shall cease and mine anger and their destruction. I'm going to get over what I had planned for you because I'm going to do my whole work. It was called the whole work in verse 12. Here, it's going to finish. It'll cease. Verse 26, And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him. Oh, he had a rod, but God is going to stir up a scourge for him. Who was the scourge? The angel of the Lord was a scourge for him shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. When Gideon slaughtered the Midianites, how did he do it? What was stirred up? Was it Gideon's fighting ability with his 300 men? Or did he have a lantern in one hand and a trumpet in the other? So who did it? God did it. It was one of those unique victories in Israel's history where God did the work because the Midianites just turned against each other and killed each other. You know, the few that were left, all the 
terrified, fearful Israelites came running out of the bushes, and there wasn't 300, there was a whole host of Israel now that had been strengthened by God, having most of the Midianites kill each other. This is, it's one of the events held up in the Bible. It's in Psalm 83, and it's elsewhere in the prophets as one of the events where we won't even have to fight. God will do it for us. And see, he's going he's gonna to stir up a scourge like Midian went down, which was God's work. God's work. According to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. And you can find this in Judges chapter 6 through 8. And as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. Because the Lord now is holding the scourge, which is a, a weapon or an instrument of punishment and chastening, chastisement. And now the Lord is lifting up a rod like he did at the Red Sea coming out of Egypt. Verse 27, And it shall come to pass in that day the destruction of Assyria, that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder. Jerusalem, Zion, would no longer be afraid. They would laugh him to scorn. His yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Because of the anointing. What is the anointing? Well, to keep this short, go to Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37, and let's remember why God saved a remnant out of Judah. There's only two anointings that really matter in the Bible. Isaiah 37 and verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. There are two anointings in the Bible that matter. The anointing of David to be king and God's promise to David, your son will always sit on my throne and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And where do you want to turn to find all the verses about the Lord Jesus Christ being anointed? Do you remember that there was a 70-week prophecy of 490 years until, he be a, until Messiah be anointed? Everything was moving toward the anointing of Jesus Christ as Lord of all. Psalm 2. What does Psalm 2 say? The kings of the earth have taken counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. He is going to come through David's line. If Sennacherib had gotten into Jerusalem and wiped out that city for resisting him for some time with their walls, engines, darts, shields, and the lack of water, if they had irritated him enough, he had wiped out the line of David, which was the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of the anointing, he cut that battle off and saved the remnant of the Jews out of Judah so that we can come to the New Testament and find in Matthew chapter 1 the genealogy running down to the Lord Jesus Christ running right through the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian army because he cut it off because of the anointing. Because of time, brethren, you can feel my frustration right now. Do you know what the previous chapter was about? Isaiah 9? The Lord would give a son that would sit on David's throne and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this that the government would be upon his shoulder, the son that would be given. It's right there in the previous chapter. Do you know what the next chapter is about? Why don't we just take a peek and look at Isaiah 11 and just the first verse. The first verse. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Go read Psalm 89 
about God choosing David out of the whole company of Israel and anointing him and making him great. But as you keep reading through the many verses of Psalm 89, it transitions to David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the anointing. Isaiah 45 and verse 7, my favorite psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ. How does it say it in Psalm 45? And it's quoted by Paul in Hebrews chapter 1, Psalm 45 and verse 7. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This is the anointing that counts. He's been anointed above David. He was anointed above Hezekiah. This is the anointing the whole world and all of world history is moving toward. There's one issue at constant stake. The seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham. The son of David. The son of God. Where is he? He's on his throne. How did he get there? by events like this being cut short by God saving his remnant. Because, and you know what? We read too fast. We, I'm, we read too fast. Blow over those four words because of the anointing. Perfect prayer this morning, brother. Oh, you set me up so well. Okay, to verse 28. For those of you that were in the men's prayer meeting, you know what I'm talking about. Brother Zach. And his prayer. Verses 28 through 32, very quickly. This is just a description of Sennacherib approaching Jerusalem. He has come to Aeth. He has passed to Migran at Mishmash. He hath laid up his carriages. He won't need them. He can leave some of his stuff there. Food for the army, extra weapons. They are gone over the passage. There is a narrow passage. All of this stuff is easily, most of it is easily identified. There was a, there was a passage between two Hills are two mountains. They're small mountains in this part of the world. That would that, if the Israelites had not been so afraid, they could have positioned the, the three hundred like at Thermopylae in Greece and withstood Sennacherib's army for some time. But there was no one there because they were all in the city of Jerusalem, terrified of the scourge of the earth coming. And so it says they are gone over the passage. See, Sennacherib took his army right over the passage. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. These villages and towns are just running away from the approaching Sennacherib Assyrian army. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Galam. Cause it to be heard unto Laish, O poor Anathoth. Madmana is removed. The inhabitants of Gebam gather themselves to flee. It's just describing total fear and chaos in the cities of Judah. We have never endured anything like this. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. He made a fatal mistake. He wrote a letter and said, what can your God do since I've taken out all other gods? And the answer was, the virgin daughter of Zion the hill of God, the hill of Jerusalem, hath laughed thee to scorn, buddy. Amen. <sighs> what a God. He's my father. I love being his son. I love knowing that we're going to rule the universe. Not for our glory. We won't want any glory. I just want to serve him. 
Praise him and adore him for his greatness. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day. See, he didn't throw up any embankments against the walls. He didn't shoot a single arrow. He sent his ambassadors to say, here's your final call, my final offer. Listen, can you guys give me a deposit? Have I already told, reminded you about that? Can you give me a deposit for 2,000 of my horses? Can you guys cough up 2,000 men to ride them? You know, the least of my captains can take down your city. Behold, we finish out the chapter. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror. He is going to fill that forest by taking out its chief tree with terror. What, what is the description of Sennacherib going back to his capital? Shamefaced. Shall lop the bow, the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature, remember the captains and the leaders? Remember? The high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty, the puffed up, arrogant, cocky Assyrian generals, captains, and leaders would be humbled, and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest. That's working his way right down to the middle class and lower class soldiers with iron. And Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Lebanon is a word for the most beautiful forest in that part of the world where they got special trees from. But Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. By this time, do you know who the mighty one is? The angel of the Lord. What a chapter. What a chapter. You know, we can even look at some battles in some of the wars that have been fought in the last hundred years by Americans, and we can see the hand of the Lord in some of those battles that turned the course of wars so quickly. You know, America was shaken and rattled by the attack on Pearl Harbor in December. But in June, we fought the Battle of Midway and destroyed a great portion of their fleet. When an, when an aircraft carrier for a little country like Japan goes down, it is an enormous capital loss. And we put three out of four down that day. It was, but the Lord arranged the weather. The Lord arranged timing. And I beg you to make faithless movies faith-based. Do you know how you do that? That's the Lord. That's the Lord. They're not going to tell you because they don't know him, but we know him. Dunkirk, that's the Lord. 350,000 soldiers standing on a sand into the English Channel that could have been annihilated, but the Lord preserved them, so they got to fight another day. England is not a big nation. 350,000 was an incredible portion of their army. And we look at events like that and we say, Lord, you are the king of nations. And thank you for sharing with us, Father, in heaven, the story of what you did to Sennacherib. He likes this story so much, we will encounter it another nine times at least before we get through the book of Isaiah. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word for us to love him, serve him, and let's not be guilty of hypocrisy because look what he did to the hypocrites even in his nation. Let's thank him for being his remnant through Jesus Christ our Lord who has been anointed, who has died for us, who was raised again, who ascended up into heaven, who sat down at God's right hand, who was given a rod of iron to rule the nations. He's our brother. He's our friend. We have nothing to fear, everything to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.